0: Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes Outcasting and its related programming possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. We think equality is equality. There has been a framework in place going back generations that reconciles the competing interests between individual equality claims and religious freedom claims. That framework, in our view, has provided the appropriate reconciliation of these interests. And we don't need to recalibrate just because the group of people who are seeking equality now is LGBTQ people.
1: This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Chris. This is the eighth part of our in-depth conversation with Jennifer C. Peiser of Lambda Legal about how claims of religious liberty are being weaponized to justify discrimination against LGBTQ people. If you've missed any of the series, you can listen on our website, outcastingmedia.org. The interviews that make up the series were recorded in August and September 2020, when the Trump administration was still in power and before the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. In the previous part of the series, Jenny and Dowcaster Lucas were talking about how changes on the Supreme Court can affect the evolution of the Court's jurisprudence. The death last fall of Ginsburg, a liberal, and her rapid replacement by Amy Coney Barrett, a self-described religious conservative, shifted the Court to the right. Not likely to be a good thing for the ongoing fight for LGBTQ equality. Jenny and Lucas also discussed a number of the Supreme Court's major religious liberty cases in the past several years including Hobby Lobby in 2014 and two cases from 2020, Our Lady of Guadalupe and Little Sisters of the Poor. Taken together, these cases have indicated a disturbing shift on the court toward respecting religious liberty at the expense of other protected interests. Again, not a good thing for LGBTQ equality, because much of the discrimination our community faces is based on religion. That's where we rejoin the conversation. Jenny, welcome back to Outcasting.
0: Thanks so much. It's great to be with you.
2: Taken together, what are the court's current positions on religious liberty and what legal grounds has the court cited in its religious liberty rulings, both in the past and more recently?
0: Well, the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution is certainly the, a prime actor in this field. The Free Exercise Clause has been cited quite a lot in these cases. The court also, as in Hobby Lobby, applied the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, a federal statute that was adopted back in 1993 and applies a particular legal test that was based on prior Supreme Court analysis. That was the basis for the Hobby Lobby decision. Another somewhat unusual example in the Little Sisters of the Poor case is that there should be rather extreme deference given to the agency rewriting regulations that's the situation where the Trump administration rewrote regulations that had been put in place after quite a lot of study and work by the Obama administration and quite a bit of federal court litigation. The Trump administration sort of pulled that rule back and imposed another one. And the Supreme Court said, well, actually, that agency has a lot of power to write rules there. It did not clearly conflict with the statute and so that rule can stand so that has more to do with administrative procedures and the rules for changing regulations in this instance it meant rather extreme deference to not just religious interests of employers but moral convictions moral beliefs which really is open ended so there's multiple different ways that religious beliefs have been recognized and protected the constitution statutes and regulatory authority. The bottom line is that this current Supreme Court has some real serious divisions in it. There are some proponents of very, very broad religious rights, some proponents of much more limited religious rights, where the thumb does tend to come down on the side of religious rights, but in a much more tailored way. And then you have members of the court who disagree and are quite vehement about it and quite concerned about the direction the country is going in. Because when religious rights of some are recognized in such a broad, robust manner, in these cases, it has meant somebody else is losing. And the dissenting opinions have called out the number of people who have been on the losing end, in particular, female employees who need birth control insurance. And in the case of Our Lady of Guadalupe, we had two women who had been teachers who were not providing religious education, particularly who lost their employment rights in ways that seemed very unfair. So we have a divided court. That's not a surprise, but it means the doctrine in this area is quite complicated because we have multiple decisions pointing in different directions.
2: So now let's look at the court's major LGBTQ and religious liberty rulings in the context of each other the court seems very deferential to sincerely held religious beliefs. Has the court indicated whether it sees any limits on how those beliefs can be exercised?
0: Well, the Supreme Court has over generations been given questions about how the religious liberty of some people interacts with the equality rights of others. It's not a new question. What's new is to have that same question presented in the context of same-sex couples or LGBT people. The answer should be the same in the current cases. A couple of years ago, the Supreme Court gave us some guidance about these questions in the Hobby Lobby case. In that case, an argument was made on behalf of workers who are entitled to have insurance coverage for birth control in their employee health plans. So it was a gender equality claim. The employers in that case, the Hobby Lobby case, and a number of similar cases, asserted a religious defense, a religious argument that they objected to birth control, and they should not have to include that insurance. What the Supreme Court told us was that the workers' rights are important, the employers' rights are important. The Supreme Court thought in that case they could harmonize them and recognize more rights for everybody by providing the birth control insurance through another method. So the employer's religious freedom could be respected, and the worker's interest in receiving the insurance could be respected, and everybody wins. So it was a recognition that religious rights should not be asserted in a way that causes harm to somebody else. That's the principle that we've had for a long time. Now, I will say, in the Hobby Lobby case, a number of parts of the legal analysis were changed in ways that give us real concern about what could happen in future cases. Usually, in cases like this, you would not meet the equality needs of one group by saying they can get their whatever it is that they need somewhere else, and so the business or the employer doesn't have to treat them equally. The equivalent situation we're concerned about is if you have a group of people being denied service, say, at a restaurant or a lunch counter, and the court were to say, well, you can get a sandwich down the block, therefore you're having your needs met and the restaurant shouldn't have to serve you. and Of of course, that completely misses the point of what civil rights laws are about. So we don't know whether in future cases we will see that the Supreme Court has shifted the analysis in a way that ignores the role that civil rights laws play in protecting people from humiliation, from being treated differently, from having to go somewhere else. That's an important part of what the civil rights laws are there for, and we're not sure what the answer will be, at least based on the Hobby Lobby case. Now, the other important case is the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, where the self-identified Christian baker refused to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. And the Colorado courts that heard the case at a number of different levels said, we have a non-discrimination law, it applies to businesses, the bakery is a business, they have to serve all customers equally without discrimination based on sexual orientation. It was a very straightforward analysis consistent with actually many decades of cases testing these religion and equality claims when they're in tension. The Supreme Court said, we've seen this issue before, when we had religious objections to civil rights laws about race discrimination. The case that made it to the Supreme Court was about a chain of barbecue restaurants where the owners refused to treat African-American guests the same and actually would would allow them to have takeout barbecue but not sit-down service barbecue. Sort of a pretty obvious violation of the civil rights law. And the reason for that discrimination, as the owners explained it, was that they had sincerely held important religious beliefs that the races should not mix, and they believed ardently for those religious reasons in racial segregation, the Supreme Court said, you have those beliefs, your beliefs are protected, but if you're operating a business subject to the civil rights law, religion is not a defense. The Supreme Court recently, in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, cited approvingly that case about race discrimination. So that's a very important recognition that this is not a new issue. What the court did in that case when they ruled in favor of the baker was rely on a different rule of law. The court saw some examples in the factual record that the Supreme Court took to be evidence of hostility to the baker's religious beliefs and said, tribunals, courts, government decision-making bodies must not be biased against religion or any particular religious beliefs. And because of some statements, some comments that were in the record, the Supreme Court said the baker was treated unfairly and therefore he should win. We disagree with that analysis. We don't think that that was warranted in that case. But it's very important moving forward that the Supreme Court, which is very conservative, cited that half-a-century-old landmark decision about race discrimination and religious motives and said it it applies here in a case about religious objections to equal treatment for same-sex couples. That's really, really important. It got lost in some of the press coverage of the case, but I think that's a very important touchstone moving forward.
1: This is Outcasting, public radio's LGBTQ youth program. Produced in New York by Media for the Public Good online at outcastingmedia.org. We're talking about what happens when people claim that their religious liberty entitles them to discriminate against LGBTQ people in ways that wouldn't be acceptable if the discrimination were against other minorities. Speaking with Outcaster Lucas is our guest, Jenny Pizer, the Senior Counsel and Director of Law and Policy for Lambda Legal the country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV.
2: In the cases so far, we've seen mainly cake shops and florists refusing to provide their goods and services for same-sex weddings. This is a snub that certainly assaults the dignity of same-sex couples, but in the scheme of things, the stakes are relatively low. But what might happen if the court establishes a general principle that religious liberty overrides the right not to be discriminated against? What happens when it's not just the refusal of a baker or florist, but someone else invoking religious liberty to justify discrimination when the stakes may be much higher?
0: Yes, we're very concerned about this. And of course, we have some good past precedents from the Supreme Court, but the makeup of the court changes when the personnel on the court changes. And so we don't know what the court would do in the future. And you're absolutely right. There's always dignitary stakes in these cases, but sometimes there are concrete harms that are there in addition to the dignitary interests. We've seen cases where there are religious objections to equal treatment with respect to medical care. Those cases always give us a lot of concern. Some of those religion-based refusals have happened with respect to HIV care, with respect to transition-related care for trans folks, with respect to infertility care for lesbian patients. We've seen objections with respect to child welfare services. When you have faith-based agencies who have government contracts to take care of young people in the foster care system where the agency is acting for the state. And in fact, there's a case right now about whether the city of Philadelphia is entitled to enforce its non-discrimination rules with respect to a contract that it has given to Catholic Social Services to take care of young people and screen prospective parents to provide homes for young people in the child welfare system. That's a situation where you have government doing a government function and engaging with private agencies with public money to serve the public. And the question before the Supreme Court is whether the agency can insist on having a contract, even though it also insists on discriminating against same-sex couples when screening for potential foster parents. Our hope is that it will be clear to the court that a government function must be done in a non discriminatory way, both in terms of the young people that are being served. They must have the benefit of the broadest range of potential parents to provide homes. The young people also need to be protected from the humiliating, damaging message that same sex couples or LGBT adults do not make good parents. And then, of course, there's the dignitary interest of same-sex couples or LGBT adults who want to help provide homes for kids in the system who are turned away by a publicly funded agency. So we do see these, these religion problems cropping up in a number of different contexts where the harms can be medical, it can be disaster services, it can be homeless services, it can be mental health care, it can be child welfare. The list is long, and these problems do tend to crop up in some of the most concerning contexts when people are entitled to receive services because they're in a vulnerable position of some sort, and we as a society have decided that we need to provide services for people they must not be done in a discriminatory way, whether for a religious motive or any other motive.
2: So we can imagine a situation in which, say, you're stuck in your car at the side of a busy highway and a tow truck driver comes up, sees that you're LGBTQ and refuses to tow your car. That could be life-threatening.
0: Well, that's absolutely right. And that's a very powerful example of, of the situation we could be in if the court were to rule that way. But let's recognize first that there has to be a non-discrimination rule in place to protect people from that kind of discrimination before we even get to the question of whether there's a religious defense. In other words, if there's not a non-discrimination rule, then a customer could be turned away or refused and wouldn't even have a discrimination claim that would prompt the business to have to then make a religious defense. And I want to emphasize that this type of example of whether it's emergency services or buying goods or services, whatever it may be, there's actually a lot more of that discrimination than many people realize. Lambda Legal has done cases, for example, we did one a number of years ago on behalf of a gay male couple where one was picking the other up at the airport and then they were driving to their home in a taxi cab. And the cab driver objected to the fact that they were a couple, made them get out of the cab at the side of the road on the highway in a rainstorm. The reality is that a lot of this discrimination is not generally visible to the general public, And we don't have protections against discrimination in about half the states at this point. This is a very important part of why we need the Federal Equality Act, a bill that's in Congress now, to become law and provide non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ people nationwide to cover the range of businesses, goods and services, the things that we all assume everybody should have access to. Because right now, like I said, in in roughly half the country, there are no state laws providing that protection. We need to have that protection at the federal level to protect everyone.
2: So just to clarify, it's currently legal for these public businesses to discriminate against us in much of the country?
0: Well, it's about half of the states do not have public accommodations, non-discrimination laws. Now, keep in mind, there's a difference between government and the constitution applies, the federal constitution, state constitutions apply when it's government. So government is not entitled to discriminate when providing services. But in the private sector, we need to have civil rights laws that apply. And even at the federal level, there is a public accommodations law. That applies. It does not cover LGBT people, but it's actually narrower than what many people think. It does not currently cover retail businesses. Like if you go into a mall and you're talking about a, you know, a retail shop, the federal non-discrimination law does not apply, which means businesses, and I think lots of people would be appalled to realize this, but the federal law that prohibits discrimination based on race, color, national origin and religion, doesn't apply to retail businesses. So that means if a state does not have a protective law, that businesses could turn customers away based on race. Now, restaurants and motels and modes of transportation are not allowed to do that, but the original federal civil rights law is much narrower in scope than the laws that many states have enacted since then. So again, I come back to the importance of the Equality Act. The Equality Act will provide that kind of protection for LGBTQ people, but it also will expand the scope of the federal law so that restaurants and businesses and businesses that operate via the internet and financial services, a range of types of businesses that have become much more a part of our lives in recent decades, they also will be covered by the federal law. That federal bill is very important to our society as a whole. It's a matter of updating our federal civil rights laws so that it fits the way we live today and it will forbid discrimination based on race, color, national origin, religion, sex, as well as sexual orientation and gender identity.
2: So things are really sort of fragile for LGBTQ people in states that don't include these protections.
0: Well, I think that's right. I mean, the reality is right now, there's a real gulf between the legal reality in some parts of the country where there are very strong, clear, thorough civil rights laws protecting LGBTQ people, and other parts of the country where there's nothing. There are some states where there are local protections, and those are important, But they don't provide nearly the protection that people need because many of the important areas of law are regulated at the state level. So local nondiscrimination protections make an important statement that LGBTQ people are welcome and that the public policy of that local area is to be welcoming and inclusive and protective. But as a practical matter, the protections people may need day to day exist at the state level. And for those states that have been hostile, that have not enacted civil rights protections for LGBTQ people, and in fact, some of them have passed overtly discriminatory laws, the reality is harsh. And it's a strange time we're living in where we have national media and national entertainment and national conversations in which LGBT people, same-sex couples are much more a part of the national conversation. We're visible in a way that we never were before. Our storylines, our lives are much more accessible to people. The lies that have been told about us historically are being dispelled more and more because we're more visible and more people know who we are. But let's be real here without effective federal non discrimination protections, people are vulnerable to losing their job, losing housing facing discrimination in public spaces. At Lambda Legal, we get thousands of calls for help every year from all over the country, including from states that do have good laws on the books, but where human behavior day-to-day does not always match what the law requires. And our goal, of course, is not that everybody should have a lawsuit. I mean, we need good laws to deter discriminatory behavior, and to create a society in which people have equal opportunity and are treated with respect and opportunity as everybody should be treated. So there's a lot of work ahead of us. It is important that the Constitution applies against government. And when the government does business, there can be non discrimination strings attached to public money. It has been a basic principle going back for decades, and it needs to remain an important principle. But there still are these areas, parts of the country, where social attitudes are very conservative. There's overt hostility to LGBT people. And without civil rights laws on the books, it can be hard to insist that people are treated fairly.
2: Is the Equality Act the only federal bill under consideration that would help?
0: Well, there is another bill that has been introduced called the Fairness for All Act. It's quite different from the Equality Act in that it would allow faith-based institutions to continue to discriminate in a range of ways. It's been presented as a form of compromise bill, and it certainly does have some supporters. And the support is primarily from Republican members who want to support equality for LGBT people, but also want to allow faith-based institutions to continue to do business the way they have been doing business. From our perspective at Lambda Legal, we think equality is equality. There has been a framework in place going back generations that reconciles the competing interests that we have sometimes between individual equality claims and religious freedom claims of of individuals engaged in business and faith-based institutions. That framework, in our view, has provided the appropriate reconciliation of these interests. And we don't need to recalibrate the whole system just because the group of people who are seeking equality now is LGBTQ people. The rules that have been in place that people understand, about which we have lots of court case law, those are the same rules that should apply now to this newer version of that familiar question. Something else that people should have in mind is the Supreme Court in June of 2020 issued this incredibly important decision in a case called Bostock that had to do with equal employment rights. These are equal employment rights under existing federal law, the employment non-discrimination law that we call Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That law forbids sex discrimination and the Supreme Court in the Bostock case concluded, as we had urged the court to conclude, that discrimination based on a person's sexual orientation or their gender identity can really only be understood as taking a person's sex into account. That the concept of sexual orientation is kind of nonsensical if you don't take into account the person's sex with respect to the sex of the person they're in a relationship with. And same with gender identity. The concept is meaningless if you don't understand the sex that the person was assigned at birth and the gender that they identify with. It has to do with sex. So the Supreme Court has agreed that under existing law, there is protection against workplace discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. And by that same reasoning, the laws forbidding sex discrimination in education and health care and housing and credit all should yield the same result. In other words, there is currently significant protection in federal law. But the Equality Act continues to be urgently needed because it fills in the gaps and it writes that protection explicitly into the statute books. And that's very important for everybody to be clear that the protection is there. This is how it applies. It all applies the same way. We're not going to have separate standards and separate types of analysis depending on the basis of discrimination. The rules really must apply the same principles consistently under the statute. So the Equality Act will do that. In our view, the the Fairness for All Act would not. It, It would provide important protections, but it would provide lesser protections, and it would set up some different standards if the discrimination is based on race, color, national origin or religion, lesser protection for sexual orientation and gender identity. And that's not equal. And what we're all entitled to is to be treated equally.
2: Thank you so much, Jenny. We're out of time for now, but we'll continue this conversation on the next edition of
1: Outcasting.
0: Thanks, Lucas.
1: That's it for this eighth part of our series on the conflict between equality for LGBTQ people and those who cite religious liberty to justify discriminating against us. If you've missed any part of this series, it's available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, Including youth participants Lucas, Sarah, Lil, Justin, Brian, and me, Chris. Our executive producer is Mark Sophus. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting content, and the podcast link. You can also find Outcasting on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher and other major podcast platforms. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school, or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem, Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. Alright, go get a piece of paper. I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 Or online at thetrevorproject.org You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org Under Outcasting, LGBTQ Resources I'm Chris. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax
0: deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.